God, I want to thank you. God, I want to claim the presence of the Holy Spirit in this room right now, Lord. I want to um, just, just, just claim it. Lord, we're going to operate in it. We're going to walk in it. We're going to receive it, and we're going to recognize it, God. Lord, this morning I pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock, my redeemer. Amen. So last week we started in chapter 14 of John and we, Jesus' words said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And these are, these are very deep words with, with a lot of meaning. And sometimes I wonder if, if we just had those words, if we just had that one verse to live our lives by, what would, what would our life look like? What would be different about us if we just meditated and tried to live that verse for the rest of our lives, to trust in God, to trust in Jesus, and not to let our hearts be troubled? I wonder how different things would be. But you know, the pursuit of that verse, it's a lifetime pursuit. It's, it's small steps forward in trust and smaller steps forward in trust. And then there's small steps in, in, in not letting our hearts be troubled. And then let's face it, sometimes life pushes and pulls at us and we take two steps forward and we take one step back. And all of the things that, that, that are just uh, flying around us and crashing into us in this world, sometimes it's very difficult to trust. It's hard to trust in things that we can see. It's hard to trust in things that are very physical to us. But Jesus calls us to trust. To trust in Him. To trust even in our own limited understanding of, of who He is. To trust in faith and not to let our hearts be troubled no matter where you find yourself, no matter what you find yourself in, Jesus calls us to trust. And then he's going to take this and he's going to push it just a little bit deeper. He's going to kind of flesh it out a little bit, not just trusting in the, in the everyday stuff, but also in a very eternal sense. I think our battery's dead, Wes. Boing, there it is. I think the switch on the bottom is off, Wes. That's better. Thank you. <laughs> so we have a tech guy because, you know, there's not an off switch. Who knew? John 14, uh, verse 1 through, 1 through 4. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, when Jesus talks about the Father's house, he's talking about, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about being with God. But the whole idea of rooms, it's a little bit, it's a little bit harder to kind of put, put a definition to. But yes, Jesus is making a promise. He is making a promise that, that he is going to come back for his church, and he is going to take his church to where he is, to his father's house. Now understand, the church is not a building. The church is not programs. The church is us. The church is people. 
And so there's this, this you get this feel that well, what's going on here. Jesus is, is making this promise, but there's something very cultural that's taking place in this also. Throughout the New Testament, there's this imagery of the church, us, being the bride of Christ. There's this imagery of, of a wedding. Jesus, the groom, the church, the bride, and, and there's, this, there's this marriage, there's this, this covenant. And I believe that this is where Jesus is starting to lead the disciples in revealing something, something very different, something very deep to them here. We have to take a look at what a wedding ceremony looked like in the first century. Now, you have a young man and you have a young woman and they are smitten. And they decide that there's, there's something there and they are going to pursue getting married. But that's, it's not just that easy. So the fathers have to get together. The father of the young girl and the father of the young man. And there's some, there's some discussion as to how this is all going to happen. The young man's father has to offer some money for the bride. It wasn't like you were buying, you know, like a mail order bride type thing, but, but it was, it was, you, you paid money to the family to receive the bride because the bride was of, of value. And, and so there's discussions going on about what those terms look like, about the dowry and how this is all going to work out. And they would enter into a contract, the two fathers. And at the end of this contract, they would seal the contract with a toast of wine. And this, this contract would be a legally binding agreement. Now, then the young man and the young woman would get together and they would begin to discuss because they always had to make sure that this is something they really wanted. Not every first century wedding was taken place with against the children's will. This was, and they wanted to make sure that they wanted this marriage to take place. And as long as that was okay, then, then the young man would offer the woman a gift. And usually the gift was, was a ring, and it would be an offer to her in front of witnesses, and he would pledge his love for her. He would pledge that you will be my wife and I will be your husband. And under the law of Moses, we will be, um, we will be unified in marriage. And then they would discuss other terms of the wedding, like when it was going to take place, how many people were going to be there, where it was going to take place. And this would all be entered, all be put into this, this agreement, this contract. It was so legally binding, in fact, that the engagement agreement, if you wanted to get out of it at this point, you had to give a certificate of divorce. You had to be divorced from your engagements. That's how legally binding this contract was. So before the bride, I'm sorry, before the groom would leave, he would make a promise to his bride-to-be. He would say, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for us to live. I'm going to build us a house. And he would go off and he would build this house. And it could take anywhere up to a year, depending on the financial status of the family. And the house was built as an addition to the father's house. It was added on to the father's house. Once the house was built, the groom would come back. He would call his bride-to-be. They would travel to the new house. There would be a ceremony that would take place and then a seven-day party. And they would celebrate for seven days this wedding. I could see some people in the back going, that's pretty good, yeah, seven days, nice. 
Karen's a wedding photographer, so she might have, I mean, you get a little bit more than what you're paying now, right? But so, so for seven days, they would have this party. See, not only was the bride to come under the authority, to come into, uh, be unified to her husband, but she would also be brought into the husband's family. And not only would she come under the authority of her husband, but she would come under the authority of the patriarch of the family, the father. And I know that we don't like that word authority. I know that, you know, especially when it comes to marriage, you know, women really don't care to be under the authority. And man, let's face it, we abuse that that whole privilege of authority. But at this point in time, it's not a bad thing. This is about belonging. This is about being cared for. This is about being brought into the family. And this is the imagery that Jesus is beginning to share with the disciples. They would have understood what he was getting at. They would understand that he's talking about a wedding, that he is going to prepare a place for them at the father in the Father's house. And it's not just some afterthought. It's not about, like, maybe we can squeeze you in. This is about being part of the family. This is about belonging and acceptance. This is about having value. And, being, and, and, and these people want you there. You are part of this family. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Are you, are you tracking with me? This is a basic, fundamental truth of our faith. You, follower of Jesus, have not been begrudgingly allowed access to the Father's house. You have been invited. You are not like some stray cat where, you know, you just kind of put some, some milk outside for the cat because you kind of feel sorry for it, but it ain't coming in because you don't want no stray. No, no, no. That's not who you are in the Father's eyes. You have been pursued. You have, you, you have value. Someone has gone after you and chosen you to be part of the family. And some of you are still being pursued by Jesus Christ, even this very morning. You are valued. He desires relationship. He desires to know you. It's not some superficial surface type relationship, man. This is, this is about deep intimacy. Why else would he have paid such a high price for you? Why else would he have paid such a high price for you? His desire is for you to enter into his father's house and belong. And there is room for all who will believe, for all who will answer the call, for all who will choose to, to be married to the groom. You know, I believe that all too often we go throughout our lives living and thinking like God has to accept us. I mean, he, he made this mess, right? So he has to love me. He has to accept me. It's his fault that, that, that I am the way I am, so he can't hold it against me, right? So he has to let me in. That's not the case. 
Too many people in our society, too many people in our churches suffer from low self-esteem. This idea that you have no value, that you have no worth, that you have nothing to contribute to society or your church or your community or your family or your job. That is the lie of the enemy. That's the lie of the devil. I mean, low self-esteem has been linked to, it's a source of so many emotional disorders from anxiety to, to depression, and, and you just, it just runs the gamut. People, people are overly worried about what others think of them. People with low self-esteem are reluctant to take on challenges. They're reluctant to trust in their own opinions, their own abilities. They expect very little out of life, and so they just kind of go through the motions and live this mundane existence. I want to tell you something. That is no way for a person to live their life, and that is no way for a follower of Jesus to live their life. You have been pursued. In fact, you have been desired so much that the ultimate price has been paid for you. That he would give his life. I mean, have you ever in your life, any of you, have you ever paid for garbage? I mean, paid to buy garbage. Or have you ever paid money to buy something that was so broken it was never going to be repaired? Oh, of course not. God knows you're broken. God knows you have issues. He sees it. He knows it. But he also sees what you can be. He also sees what wholeness looks like in your life. And that's what he desires for you. He wants to put you back together again. He sees beyond your brokenness and he sees what you look like as a whole living human being. He sees the potential that you have in your life for the kingdom of God. He sees the potential in your life that you have to bring glory to his name and to change this world. A bride is chosen and valued, never settled for. Can you imagine, guys, if you walked up to your wife and said, you know, I got nothing better, so, you know, I'm going to pick you. Yeah, you're not getting married. A bride is chosen and valued. You have been chosen. You have value. And you need to begin to live your life in that truth. It's a fundamental, basic truth of our faith. What I find interesting in this whole text is what Jesus says in verse 4. At the end here, he says, you know the way to the place where I am going. And the reason why I find this interesting is because as I look at this, it seems that we do not have to wait for the return of the, of the, of the groom. We do not have to wait for the return of Jesus to be in the Father's presence, to be in the Father's house. Jesus is telling them that his whole life Everything he has done has been pointing them in the direction of the Father. Everything that he has said, everything that he has done, points them towards the Father. His whole life is showing them how to walk and to live in harmony with God. And if we imitate that, and if we follow it, we can walk in harmony with God. And we will have residence in the Father's home. Maybe not in a literal sense that we're actually there, but we will belong. We will be part of the family. 
with everything that comes with that. We will have that relationship. And then it goes on, and this is what Thomas says to Jesus. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Thomas is a little perplexed about this whole thing. And so, I mean, I'm sure he gets the whole wedding thing and, you know, compare the place and dad's house. He understands that's a very cultural thing. Jesus is preparing a place, but he's got some questions because things are not too clear for him. And they're very open and they're very honest questions. He he doesn't know. The disciples don't know where Jesus is going. They literally do not know where he's going. And then Jesus told them just a few verses before, you can't come where I'm going. So wait, they don't know where he's going. They can't come to where he is going. So how do they know the way? It would be like somebody telling you that you know the way to a place that you don't even know exists. Okay, so go there. So, so Thomas, it's not making sense to him. And, 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 you know, again, I just like and I love the honesty of this question. It makes me feel like when I don't understand things, when I have questions about things that are going on in my life, when I have questions about God, I can go to him and I can ask him those questions in all, open, all openness, in all honesty. Remember that Jesus is telling the boys to trust. Listen, even when things are falling apart around you, that you need to trust. Trust in God. Trust in me. Don't let your heart be troubled. Well, Thomas, Thomas is having a little bit of trouble understanding this. And so he asks a question. He, he pries a little bit. He wants a little confirmation, a little clarification of what's going on. Things don't make sense. And so for us, for me, when I don't know what's going on, I can go to God. What, what are you doing? I don't, what, what do you mean this? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you making me go through this? The door is wide open. We're invited to wrestle and to press into God. But here's the thing. There's always a thing. When you ask those questions, you may not get the answer that you want. In fact, if you ask those questions, you may not get an answer that that looks like it has anything to do with the question you originally asked anyway. Because Jesus always pushes things a little deeper. Jesus always moves things in different directions. He always shakes things up a little bit. Look at his answer to Thomas. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's another I am statement of Jesus. It's deep with meaning, but let's face it. Thomas asked him a specific question, and he gets this for an answer. It's not really an answer to the question that he asked. Jesus always moves the conversation, moves the questions into a different direction. Always. And I got to ask, why? And it could be that we, as human beings, we just ask the wrong questions. I mean, aren't our questions always about me and, and I and why me and and, and even if we're asking about for somebody else, it's, it's, many times it's because we have some type of stake in it. And, we're, and, and, and maybe, maybe the questions we ask have no real eternal value. And Jesus always wants to lead us in the right direction. And so he answers Thomas, Thomas, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Jesus is not just directing traffic. He is the way. 
He is truth. He is dependable in everything that he has said, everything that he has done, everything that he has taught. His message is not only life, but he is life himself to all those who will believe. And then he speaks those words that I believe that have been abused by Christians throughout Christianity. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Some paint this picture of Jesus standing at the door of the throne of God with his arms crossed and a scowl across his face like he's some bouncer at some elite L.A. club. And he's just waiting to turn you away because you don't measure up, because you are not right, because you're broken or you're a mess. He's waiting to just, nope, next, nope, next. It's not what he means. Jesus is standing at the throne of God with his arms open. He's flagging us down. He's waving, come on in. He's inviting us in, come eat at the banquet. There is room for everyone. We sometimes get so arrogant about Jesus. I think he just shakes his head at us. But this is not about him standing at the door with his arms crossed. This is about standing at the door with his arms open and inviting people in. And so the question Jesus gives, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The way speaks to, it speaks about connection between things, connection between people. Jesus is our connection to God. Jesus is our connection as sinful people, sinful human beings to a sinless, perfect God. He is our connection on a journey of harmony with him. And then he says that he is the truth. He is completely, 100% dependent. uh, um, He's dependable and reliable. Everything he has said, everything he has taught, and everything he has showed us, he is not just truthful. He is truth. And then he'll say, I'm life. For those who believe Jesus is life, absolute fullness of life. And this is just not about physical existence or survival. This is about abundant life here, now, today, and for all eternity. But these words don't come lightly. These, these, the Son of God has just spoken very deep, meaningful words on the eve of when he will be um, crucified, when he will be, when he will be killed. These words do not come lightly. He has spoken these when things look like they're going to come crashing down on him and crashing down on the disciples. He tells them, I'm the way. In the not-so-distant future, he will be on his way to the cross. They will strip him of his clothes and nail him to it, and he will suffer for hours hanging on it. He said, I'm the truth. And even even now as he speaks these words, accusations, false accusations are being made about him to people. And these false accusations will look like they will, they're winning because they will send him to the cross and people will believe them. And the crowd will be enticed because of them. And they will all shout, crucify him. The lies seem to have won. And he said, I'm life. And as he hung on that cross, as his lungs filled with fluid, 
his own fluid, and he drowned, died. His lifeless body was taken off the cross and buried in a tomb. And it was at that point that the darkness seemed its darkest. Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, dead, nailed to a cross as a common criminal, is dead. What were the disciples thinking? Just a few hours ago, he told us that he is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is, he is life. And now look at what has happened. Remember in verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus said, trust. Trust. Would you trust? Do you trust that you have been wonderfully made by the creator of all things? Do you trust that even in your brokenness, he loves you? Do you trust that he is pursuing you? That you have incredible value? That you are valuable enough that he gave his life for you? Do you trust that? Do you trust that his body was beaten and broken for you? Do you trust that he spilled his blood so that you can be forgiven? Do you trust in that forgiveness? Do you trust in his mercy? Do you trust in his grace? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust. Do you trust that you have a home? That you've been, you've been brought into this home? You've been accepted? Do you trust those things? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in in me. This is, this is what the table, the communion table really represents this morning. That's our meditation this morning. Do you trust in those things? Do you trust that Jesus has paid the price for you, not because you're junk, not because you're garbage, but because God loves you more than you can ever imagine. He loves you so much right where you are, but he loves you beyond what you can imagine that he won't let you stay where you are. He always wants to move you closer to him. He wants to draw you in. He wants to sanctify your life, that you would walk this earth more and more, reflecting the sun. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? As we take communion this morning, I want you to think about that, that verse. Again, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Jesus. Trust who you are in Jesus. Trust who you are in Jesus. Redeemed. Saved. A new person. Trust in grace. Trust in forgiveness. Stop being harder on yourself than he is on you. That's just arrogant. As you're ready to come and, and take communion, you come up and take the bread and the cup and, and have a seat, and, and we'll take them. We'll take them together.